Won't you lend your lungs to me? Mine are collapsing. Plant my feet and bitterly breathe up the time that's past. Breath I'll take and breath I'll give. Pray the day's not poised. Stand among the ones that live in lonely indecision. Hey, James. Hello, Wayne. Welcome home. Well, thank you. I got back in time, just in time to get down to the courthouse amongst swords of other people in a jury pool who were coughing all over the place, and I've had a terrible cold ever since. Oh. I apologize for my voice if it's not up to its normal low standards. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Um, I want to say that today is October 4th, no, October 3rd, and we're taping episode 11. I like to keep track of these things. I don't know why, but uh, I have to say that at the beginning. And then it saves me from taping another segment later. So uh, episode 11, here we are. You have been home actually for over a week, I think, from your trip to Utah, which is your second is your second annual. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. Last year, uh, I flew into Salt Lake City, spent very little time in Utah, spent most of the time with Ishmael and Shane in Wyoming and Montana. Oh, that's nice. Uh, I spent this entire trip in Utah. There's a lot of things that I wanted to see in Utah, and I was particularly interested in the places where Ishmael grew up. I wanted to write a biography that focused just on him and his father and how he learned to hunt and uh, do, do the other things that he's done to sustain himself and his family. So um, that's in the Salt Lake City general area. How far away from the city does he live? Uh, there's over top of uh, Salt Lake City, there's something called the Wasatch Mountains. Yeah. And he lives, then you have the Wasatch Back. And between the Wasatch Back and the South Hills, there's this upland Valley. It's a meadow, so a meadow is like this valley that's six or seven thousand feet above sea level. Wow. And then when you go over to South Hills, then you go into the Camas Valley. The Camas Valley has five little towns in it. He lives in one of those five little towns. Camas is the name of an onion, an indigenous onion that I think Lewis and Clark, uh, they got really bad gas from eating a bunch of them. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when they were fed by, I think, the Shoshones or uh, some tribe whose uh, extreme southern range would be around above Salt Lake City. Uh, above uh, Camas Valley, there's the Unitas Range. And this is the place where the four river systems that feed Utah, all the rivers basically come out of this uh, northwest corner of Utah right on the border with Wyoming. That's where almost all the water that feeds Utah comes from, and it spreads out. And I thought my favorite river was the Provo River. And you get to see these things when they're little creeks up in the mountains, and it's, they're only like a foot deep, and you're on this stony plateau. Mm. And uh, so I spent most of my time between 6,000 
and uh, 11,000 feet. Oh, and he wow. was at about he was at about 65. The most fun I think I had was helping him harvest all of his tomatoes. The last night of summer, his greenhouse got blown apart by this wind when we were down in the South Desert. Oh. Uh, I'll talk to you about the South Desert later. And when we got home, the next day was going to be the first day of fall, and it looked like it was going to be frost because we could see that it was going to snow up on the mountains. So uh, that was just fun. Uh, it was it, – it made me feel like cleaning out a produce case years ago when I was a store manager. <laughs> so we got about eight buckets, eight five-gallon buckets of tomatoes wow, that's and cucumbers a lot. out of out of his uh, uh, out of his greenhouse. The terrain there, there are certain types of uh, vegetation at these different levels, at these different altitudes. And he spent one day just showing me all the vegetation. And how the wildlife interacted with it on what's called a bench, which is really this ledge of rock between these two big mountains. I guess we were about 8,500 to 9,000 feet up. And we pulled up two of these one-and-a-half-pound porcini mushrooms. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so the next day we ate about $300 worth of mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> Retail. That felt pretty good. The, the whole mushroom thing just scares the hell out of me, but he knows about all these different kinds of mushrooms. Yeah, that's not so, for amateurs. That's, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think he collect for a while he used to collect them for a supplier. I think he still supplies some in the local restaurants. Yeah. The, the best time I had as far as being out was the, the West Desert. We drove till we were almost 100 miles from the nearest electric lights. And this desert, when you drive through it, it has all of these anthills. And the anthills look like maybe places where a little spaceship has landed. Mm -hmm. There's a perfect 15-foot-wide cleared space around a 2-foot-wide, 1-foot-high mound. And these, these are these large black ants that do this. And there's thousands of these anthills. And we drove off the road on a dirt road for about a half hour to get to a trilobite mm, uh, excavation place, right, yeah. where they have a lot of these things. I brought one home for my grandson and then drove up onto the shoulder of Swayze Mountain. And from the shoulder of this mountain, we were about 2,000 feet above. Uh, there, there was a straight drop down about 2,000 feet. We could see uh, the salt flats in Nevada from where we were and these mountains are like islands in this ocean of desert up on the mountains you'll have water where there might be none we finally got to the point where the severe river just died and turned into this salt marsh mm. so then you don't have any more water but then when you go up on the mountains there's springs wow. up on these mountaintops and they're pretty heavily forested the woods are kind of stunted they're Maybe the trees are maybe 10 to, you know, 20 feet high at the tallest mm. at the elevation we were at. And they get smaller the higher you go up. Right. The wind whipping through the uh, through the trees sounds just like the ocean surf at the ocean because hmm. it, it howls up this, uh, this crevice of rock that's overgrown with all these evergreen green trees and, and makes this, uh, this howling noise. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so maybe next year I'll get out there early enough for the pinion harvest 
uh, we ended up using a lot of pinion pine cones to start a fire. Mm-hmm. And, um, what do they, they harvest? Just, do they harvest the pine nuts or what? What do they harvest? Yeah, he said he used to go out with his wife and harvest them. Wow. And um, somebody had been up there, people and animals, getting all of them except the ones that were at the extreme tops of these trees mm. right before we were up there, probably a few weeks before that. Those are super expensive too. Now you can't, you can almost only find the Chinese ones now. Right. Well, there was, you could fill up baskets of pine nuts, uh, I guess, if you went up there and knew what you were doing for about a week. Yeah. It looks like maybe that's what people did. Yeah. It was uh, a beautiful country. The, uh, I had trouble dealing with the open spaces and the fact that nobody locks their doors. (laughs) It was just freaking me out. I, I, I was experiencing stress from being, I, you know, yeah. leaving houses that were unlocked and leaving cars that were unlocked. I think that you, it's almost like you had a whiplash because you were uncomfortable there, but then by the time you, you got back to Baltimore, you weren't your normal self in Baltimore either. Right. I had, my, my guard had been eroded. I, I had become half civilized, yeah. uh, being out there, uh, uh, in the wilds and in the mountains, and then coming back to this uh, feral savagery here, I, I felt almost as out of sorts here as I did on the mountain. The first day I was there, I went up on that bench with him, and I actually got the shakes. I was walking along in this beautiful meadow eating goose, uh, grouse berries and uh, some other type of berry, and he's explaining everything to me. And... Um, I was just getting the shakes. It was, uh, I'm not used to being able to see that far. Mm. And it was, uh, it was just really odd for me. I'm used to a much more cluttered environment. And then after uh, a day or so, I, I felt okay. Yeah. I wonder if the altitude played a part too. Uh, I didn't seem to have any trouble with the altitude other than my sinuses blowing up on me. Oh. You know, I've got from, um, you know, from working in refrigeration and from boxing it. I've got some problems with my sinuses, so there was constantly squeaking going on in my ears uh, the, the whole trip. Oh. But it was worse when we sat back down in Baltimore and got back into the armpit of the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, and now you have a cold. So We had uh, the good luck of having Sea Daddy and the Checker Demon come out there. Oh, yeah. So there was uh, four of us old uh, coons. Uh, <laughs> sitting out at night and uh, drinking whiskey under the stars. And we got a lot of good work stories. I, well, the interviews and, and everything and, and the scenic verses that I did for Ishmael's book, none of that stuff's going to be online. It's just going to be in the book. It's, it's about 30 chapters, but short chapters, you know, like 500 words piece. You know, so it's not going to be a real big book, but that's done. I did the whole thing when I was out there. Oh, wow. Did you, it doesn't take long. What's you, that? Did you bring a camera? Uh, no, no. no. I, I don't have any. He's uh, he's going to take pictures and email them to me. Okay. Hey, James, hold on. I'm going to come right back, okay? Just hang on. Okay. I now have uh, a napping child on my lap. So okay. I think we can continue. Um, so Ishmael, will, he will send you some photographs? Yes, the he took me to uh, these very important scenes that he experienced with his father when he was young, and uh, 
they're mostly at the foot of mountains, mm. usually up in either on benches or in meadows. You know, so if the mountains are generally about 10,000 feet high in the Unitas Range where we were, the meadows are at six to 7,000 feet. And the benches are up around eight and nine thousand feet. So, uh, and th- there's some higher meadows too. There's some meadows at the same level too. And I, I'm not quite sure of the distinction. But what I asked him to do is just to go back to the places where we had these interviews and uh, just take pictures of the surroundings and email them to me so I can uh, arrange them and use them in a book. Well, this is really interesting because. It sounds like this might be a book with almost no content available online. Yes. Yeah. So we'll have to talk about it again when it's ready for publication. Okay. That's uh, That sounds fantastic. Okay. Did you get out around into the towns very much? You talked about the beautiful scenery. We uh, – the towns up in uh, the Camas Valley – they didn't seem like towns to me. They seemed like gas stations. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that what to me that wasn't being in a town up there. There's uh, there's a place called Park City where the hipsters and the yuppies and the SJWs are invading mm. the area, and you have people like Tom Hanks and Michael Jordan and other really super rich people have bought these mountaintop uh, McMansions. Mm. And, you know, they, you know, these gated mountaintop communities, there's an Olympic ski resort there. There's a fellow named Dante who's got a place called uh, the No Worries Grill. He only serves breakfast. He used to be the head chef at the Excelsior Hotel in, I think, Portland, Oregon. I think that's the place. But he grew up in Northern California on a ranch. His retirement job is running this breakfast eatery uh, out there in Park City, and he fed me for half the week oh, at nice. no charge. He's a really nice guy. He likes to read a lot. The, the whole situation with what's happening with Park City and the public lands there and the utilities is pretty strange. It doesn't look good. There's there's this type of it. It's an invasion you know, where in Baltimore City you have this invasion of hood rats. Out there you actually have millionaires and billionaires yeah. coming in and just buying the place. Uh, for instance, he showed me a couple of places where the mountains are all public land. Mm-hmm. And these rich people bought a ring of property around the base of the mountain. Yeah, yeah. So now yeah. so people can no longer use public land they that do this yeah unpaid for private land it's like super it's like super gentrification and they do this the movie stars do this in california where because uh, supposedly in california the beaches are public land all the beaches are public land but then they'll do that they'll put gates and roads and things like that that make it really hard to get out there yeah so there's there's that going on they're also importing teachers from L.A. Uh, there's one young boy. I talked to his mother. He had a Stars and Bars case on his smartphone. And that was uh, – he was uh, disciplined for having this. And 
he refuses not to take some of this imagery to school. He's actually been writing reports defending the stars and bars, explaining what every star stands for. He's like this real militant kid. You know, he's not a he's not a southern person. These are uh, these are people from northern Utah, but it's just this people that grew up on farms and grew up hunting with their fathers and fishing with their fathers. They really can't stand what's going on in school. I actually the generation of men that I was socializing with. Um, you can give you an idea of the social change. These guys went to school in the nineteen. 60s, where I went to school in the 1970s, they still had boxing classes mm. in their schools out there in the 1960s. In areas like Baltimore, we only had boxing up through the 1930s in public schools. Oh, wow. So you're talking about a full generation lag yeah. behind. And it was very interesting spending so much time with Ishmael because his father in his day, was actually a man out of time. He was working as a shepherd. Wow. Right now, the only people working as shepherds out there are Peruvian guys yeah, yeah. who are out there poaching meat uh, and doing other legal stuff while they're watching uh, sheep. But his father was actually a shepherd, and the one place we camped out, uh, the shoulder of Mount Swayze, was the place where he used to come with his flocks. Uh, back in the 1920s and 30s, during World War II, he was the only man in his district who was not drafted. A lot of these guys from the city of Utah got chewed up in the Pacific and in Europe. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a, a negative uh, uh, a negative idea of military service coming from World War II, which we think is real heroic. These guys didn't like their experience during World War II. Israel's father went to work in a lead mine. He had to get out of sheep herding and get into working and uh, hard rock mining uh, to help supply the war effort because he was a little bit older. Uh, He was, uh, he was born in the teens. So he would have been drafted had uh, Truman invaded Japan. His father would have been drafted, Mm -hmm. but he was in that group of guys that was over 30 and was being used uh, to work on uh, industry and mining and things like that at home. That's amazing that he was a shepherd. That seems like something that is out of a storybook or something. I don't know anybody who might have done that job. Yeah, he was a shepherd and a hunter and a hard rock miner, and he worked as a roughneck for a while. And uh, Ishmael did all these jobs, too. Uh, Ishmael has bitten the testicles off of thousands of uh, <laughs> I've seen that right. on video. <laughs> right. Yeah, he said, look up the micro thing. Yeah, so micro that, did that. that. That's what he said. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I eat mutton. He doesn't eat like eating lamb. He eats like year old lamb. Yeah. I had mutt with them. We had bison. We had elk and venison. Wow. Uh, no bear or rabbit this year. Oh. Apparently, bear are real touchy. You only kill them if you know they've been eating certain things. Okay. Because they might be eating out of latrines. Oh. Or monsters you don't know. Wow. That's awful. <laughs> did you have any liver this year? I did not. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you still not like liver? Uh, I can't even stand the smell of it. Oh. So good. Yeah. I, I I liked all the other meat that, uh, <laughs> that I had out there, but uh, uh, not not the liver. Mm-hmm. The uh, I had some nice fish. I forget what kind it was. Uh, I think I'll go out 
sometime next year at a different time so I could sample uh, more of the natural foods. Yeah. But the, the the things that are going on socially out there are really ridiculous. And I could give you an example. There's, uh, you know, you have like a situation where they have volunteer fire departments. There's this one lady in this neighborhood that cuts the grass around the volunteer fire department. Mm-hmm. And she cuts the grass for so many people in her area that her husband, who has a machine shop, actually makes uh, parts to replace worn out parts on the lawnmower. Wow. And this guy used to make the pipes. If, if a pipe burst and, and the local waterworks people needed a pipe, this guy would do it for free hmm. okay? because it's a community. Yeah. It's his community. He wants water for his children and his grandchildren. So he would make the, he would fit this pipe for free and, they would only uh, he would only charge for the materials. Now, since that you have uh, management people from California and from down in Salt Lake City migrating up into this area and wanting to ensure a higher volume of taxation and utility use, they insist on paying ten times as much to get a piece of pipe from China. Wow! That sometimes is going to have to be refitted anyhow. Yeah. It's not up to specs. Oh, there's so, probably you know, kickbacks going on there. Well, well right. I, they were asking me why I thought this was, and I was like, look, if you got guys that are professional municipal managers, the more they can bloat the budget, the more they can skim. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the more they can get in kickbacks for buying materials and whatever. So you have these people that are uh, have literally – uh, built this community and are capable of living off of what's produced up there. They're being invaded by these people who are largely responsible for destroying the places like where I come from. And these people are running away from what they have wrought and they're bringing their foul business to this pristine wilderness. Yeah. And I, I've seen these guys cry mm. when they drive down the road and they see certain things. Mm. I did meet a guy who works in the film industry uh, as a a lighting gaffer. Mm. And he got his break when they were filming the the Jeremiah Johnson movie in the area. His name is Garland is his first name. I don't know what his last name is. Really nice guy. Had me over for tequila and beer. And we sat by the creek uh, by an open fire outside uh, with him and Ishmael and a fellow who trims. He does – road maintenance and he makes sure he cuts trees away from the road makes sure everything's safe and uh garwin got his break building the cabins and things for the sets for the robert redford movie jeremiah johnson when he was a teenager back in the 70s early 70s and he's been self-employed ever since wow and he was a really great guy now the guy jack who does all the work on the roads uh he's explaining to me how these people, these developers and these land speculators have cut these roads that are unsustainable mm. in certain areas. And this guy's got to go out and risk his life cutting these trees down in places where a road shouldn't even be so that some faggot from L.A. can get up to his ski chalet. Yeah. And he's bought this right away up this mountain. And you can see – you can even see it from the air when you fly out. You can see where lanes have been cut 
for development in these mountainsides. From a distance, it doesn't seem that they're forested from what I'm used to looking at in the east, but mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. I'm just not used to looking at something that's nothing but evergreens and these uh, aspen. They call them uh, quakies mm-hmm. because of the way the leaves shake in the wind. Well, that's unfortunate that they're experiencing that, you know, because it's really true that California used to be really nice. Even I can even remember when it was a lot nicer than it is. And now you just have to go further and further away to find that kind of wilderness and quiet. Well, it's still a very nice place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's big, right? And it's pretty... Sparse. Yeah, and there's uh, uh, the, this area of the United States is really uh, is a scenic approach to Wyoming. There's two different ways to get through it. Uh, we should get a lot of nice photos of the mountains uh, from the from the foot of the mountains mm. uh, for, for the book. Yeah, I will. Since it was about him and his father, we wanted to do the photos looking up at the mountains. Okay. I will look forward to seeing those. And then uh, you came home just in time to serve on a jury, which is already complete. Is that right? Yes, yes. Are you free to talk about that? You gonna, sure. Are you going to write about it? I, I did write a piece about it today that I put up. Uh, I think it's The Ugliest Lady in Baltimore, <laughs> which is from this scene where you know, the, the judge looks like Mr. McGoo. Oh. And it's a big courtroom. There's 100 or 120 people as the jury pool. And he would point to somebody and try to describe what they were wearing or what they looked at. And he points at this big goon that looks like an offensive lineman from some university. And he says, you know, the lady in the brown shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and the courtroom just erupts him in, in laughter, you know. And all these things are said that are inappropriate. And, and it's just funny. And the courtroom's loaded with cops and, and corrections officers that are all getting dismissed from duty because the defense attorney doesn't want any of these people on there. Yeah. And I've got to go up there and talk about, you know, what I did uh, illegally and that, you know, that I had a hearing and that the charges got dismissed and that what it was. And that, that was uh, that was interesting because the person sitting near me actually eavesdropped on what I said to the judge when he was going by me to the bathroom. And uh, <laughs> he, he turns around. I'm a, one of the only white people in here. And he turns around. And he says, ah, man, that was a great story. That was some white <laughs> shit up there. He said, you was laying some niggas down back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> And the whole time, yeah, there's this tactical detective right behind me. You can tell this guy looks like he could be like Denzel Washington's sidekick on the next black super cop movie, right? Uh-huh. Right behind me. So before I say anything, me, the big boy, and this gigantic Amazon woman who took a shine to me all time are turned around and looked at this cop. And the cop just shrugged his shoulders like, I don't give a shit what you did. So I continue with the story, and I said, with all due respect – it was a Caucasian Negro. <laughs> so when when I actually got selected for the jury on this uh, on this murder trial, these two people actually clapped for me when I got up. Woman was like in love with me. Okay, she was. I guess she was about six seven, three fifty. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she was big. She was pretty. She had a nice, pretty face. 
Uh, her head was probably twice as big as mine. I mean, <laughs> she was not grotesquely overweight. It's just that she was so big. Yeah. It was like Shaquille O'Neal's sister. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I let that opportunity pass. I'm mm. like, okay, just, uh, <laughs> this is, you know, we want to talk about a crush. <laughs> this, could, this could be a real crush. So, <laughs> so we're not going here. <laughs> and, uh, the jury and I were, uh, actually the process was fantastic. I think that's probably, the best process that humans could come up with. Mm. And although the prosecuting attorney and the detectives were clearly corrupt, mm. the uniform officer was fantastic. He refuted everybody's statement. Wow. He disproved what a lot of the conjecture that the prosecution came up with and a lot of this false narrative that the uh, detectives came up with, which they didn't have to come up with because the defendant was actually clinically retarded. Wow. Uh, we, one of the ladies on the jury is in special ed, and she said, I'm not even qualified to work at the school that this man went to. It's that bad. Wow. Anybody come out of that school. It's it's amazing he could do the work he did every day. He he basically scraped up shingles and concrete at at at, at uh, construction sites mm. for his life. And uh, both lawyers and both detectives were able to get this defendant to say anything they wanted them to say. Sure, yeah. Except for the defense attorney. Any time the defense attorney threw him a ball, gave him an easy question that he could answer a certain way, and it would help his case. He would refuse. Really? Yeah, because he still loved this girl. This was his girlfriend that he killed, and he still talked about her in the present tense. Hmm. He never stepped away. He never talked about her in the past tense, and he talked about them loving each other and not. I mean, the the detectives built this whole scenario that she was this bar brawler that was beating the hell out of him. Oh. Uh, and he's like, she would never hit me. <laughs> you know, so so this is like they could have got the conviction and the and the one guy, this faggot in a pink bow tie, real big guy, looked like he could have played football. First day walking out, I locked eyes with him because he was standing there like he was the community advocate for this terrible crime and he was thanking every juror that left. And when I looked him in the eyes, he put his eyes down on the floor mm. because I saw my understand. He specifically lied about two things that had to do with the weapon. And I knew they were lies, and any guy that had his training knew they were lies. But he was passing this bullshit off in court, just trying to make sure his conviction goes through that's based on false testimony that he rang out of this guy when he didn't need to ring false testimony out of him because all he had to do was sit in front of a prosecuting attorney and have him and have him just answer everything the way she wants it answered. Yeah. Um, so that was sad. All the jurors were disgusted by these two detectives. The female detective swore like a sailor. We were, this was five hours of video. We saw the interrogation. She swore like a sailor and then would call this guy sweetie and honey mm. and touch the back hand and yeah. get all seductive. And then start swearing like a sailor. And any time the big detective – now, this dude's like 120 pounds, the guy that did the crime. Mm -hmm. Any time this towering, massive detective uh, would ask him a question, if he answered it and it wasn't what the detective wanted to hear, the detective would yell at him until the guy agreed, oh, 
that yeah, it must be the way the detective said. Mm. Or, uh, yeah, you know, so th- that despite that, it, it was still really easy to come to a just verdict here. The judge was a, a guy that he he made a, a joke at one point that I, I didn't particularly appreciate, but he knew where this was going. Mm. And knew this guy didn't have a chance, and for some reason this guy was was found competent to stay in trial, and he knew it was going to go to a convention. The what the prosecution wanted first degree premeditated murder, and the first thing I said when we got in the room is you know this guy couldn't premeditate a sandwich, mm-hmm. you know, so, and everybody immediately agreed. Nobody thought it was first degree murder, and nobody thought it was manslaughter. And there were some questions that some of the people had about the stabbing, which I went over. I pretty much horrified them all. Um, <laughs> and you know, told me, yeah, I've stabbed people before. And, uh, that's why I talked to the judge about. Wrote a book the, on the it. other way to is this guy that looks like a, a cubicle type of person. Mm-hmm. He did a really good job, but he's looking at me in dread the whole time. Uh, but him and I agreed on everything, and we basically led it. And there were two ladies that kind of led the way in this too there is the funniest thing this this woman sarah who was killed she was five eight according to the coroner she was five eight and weighed 208 pounds now the lawyer is just as small as the defendant and he's got this really great voice and he could have this guy could have been on tv the prosecuting lawyer the state's attorney the last thing she said for closing arguments was this that's facts. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> T H A T apostrophe S F A C T yeah. pronounced S. And the other thing she said during uh, her closing argument, she said, "You know how you come out your house in the morning. You know how you come out your house in the morning." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this was like one of Marilyn Mosby's understudies. Oh man! And this girl took like an hour to do her closing arguments. It was ridiculous. The defense attorney comes up there and bam, 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 bam. He's doing this great job of oratory, totally different league. But, of course, his guy didn't have a prayer. He's just trying to make sure it doesn't come down as first-degree murder. Yeah. Because this is what uh, the state's uh, pressing for. And at one point, he says, and and the victim, for you know, for all her woes and the sadness her, in her life, she was an enormous woman. <laughs> okay? And now – we got three black women on this jury. Yeah, you have that. One of them next to Sha- me. Shaquille's sister. Yeah. Well, no, no. This oh, no. was a different one. Okay. Wasn't quite that big, but was muscular. Oh. And looks like it's like Shaka Zulu's big sister. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and then there's two pretty normal size, you know, younger middle-aged black chicks there. Uh, this was all. These were all family people. I think I was the only single person here, other than this one. The alternate was a baby doll. She looked like a stripper. I mean, this girl was. A, everybody, the judge, the attorneys, the cops, the jury, everybody stopped and watched her weave. <laughs> she walked out. I think it was going to be the last chance we got to see her. <laughs> this pretty little white girl. Mm. But the. Uh, but most of the people were all family people. These were all the the black people. Except for the one gigantic ghetto girl next to me, they were all married black people mm. with husbands and wives, kids. Okay, uh, we had a Latina, we had a Middle Eastern guy who was a Christian. I think he was from Lebanon. Now, when we got back in the chambers, 
the one lady said, I about came out of my seat when he called that little white girl enormous. She said, 208? That's horrible. Not even well fed. (laughs) And everybody's shaking their head like, yeah. And the jury foreman is like this. Perfect BMI, 145-pound, 5-foot-8-inch guy, and he's looking around like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this this isn't exactly my scale, you know. (laughs) You know, so at the end, we end up, uh, you know, uh, this guy's in the general population. Mm. And it's a 60-year-old tiny white dude who apparently – had a had a lapse. This woman used him for alcohol. She was drinking herself to death. Her entire family got slaughtered in a car accident. And oh. this guy would not stop talking about this. All this guy talked about was how bad his girlfriend had it. Wow. She met him and how he tried to take care of her. But according to friends and everything, she used numerous men for alcohol. She was in a part of town that I knew well and one of the other jurors knew well. And as soon as as she would get drunk enough, she would just start yelling at him and tell him to leave. Mm. And apparently, that, during one of these occasions, it got physical, and he ended up killing her with this, you know, with a kitchen knife or something. Oh my gosh! And and the cops posed the evidence. Oh yeah. Uh, in the knife book, but they actually for the photos for the evidence on the scene, the the knife was obviously posed. You know, mm-hmm. it was not as found. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that it, it's just, on one hand, you really can't see how these detectives would be able to get a conviction on a halfway savvy criminal, or in any case where there was really any doubt. Yeah. Okay, if there was any reasonable doubt, I don't see the way these thugs go about getting the job done gets anybody convicted. And that's the thing to look at because this guy's toast. There's no way he gets out of it. It should have just been a plea bargain, second degree. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, or he should be in a mental institution or, or some kind of place where he's not going to be getting beaten up and raped. Okay. <sighs> but that's not going to happen. That's what's going to happen to him. And, uh, He's going to be this little gnome in the land of the predatory giants. Yeah. Uh, it, it, the the really illustrative thing was how bad the prosecution was, how bad the protect the detectives were, how good the uniformed officer, and how uh, how how limited expert testimony had a very limited. Uh, it was very limited what she could say. Yeah. Okay, so. You had to have somebody else there to actually piece together what happened, and that person wasn't there. Mm. Okay, that person was number seven in a jury box, me. So I did it back in the jury room because everybody was just curious. Well, what actually happened? Nobody said what happened, but it was very obvious according to the wounds and the evidence that the uniformed police officer showed us that he found on the site and and everything. What exactly happened? Hmm. Uh, so that. At least the people that gave the same ruling that they would have given anyhow felt like they understood what happened after uh, we were done discussing it in the back. Yeah, well, it sounds like you guys came to a a fair um, conclusion despite all the flaws in the system. The way it funnels you you through this process where it's not just like it's first degree or nothing. It's like fine for first degree, 
if not go to two, which is yeah. second degree, if hey. not go to three. You know, hey. so. Do you need to go potty? Sorry, hold on, James. Do you need to go potty? <laughs> not you. <laughs> Do you need to go potty? No, I'm good. I'm good. Okay, <laughs> hold on. My two-year-old is pretty much potty trained, but she still needs a lot of encouragement. You want to keep that in the podcast. You want to keep it in? (laughs) Uh, One thing I should say on behalf of the the police detectives, they they seem to be under pressure to go for this kind of quick resolution of any case. If they can get a confession from bullying somebody – then that's preferable because these two detectives were working on numerous murders on the same night in the same building. They're like interrogating this dude about his case. Then they're going to interrogate this dude about his case. Uh, So it looks like you got a staffing problem, not enough detectives to handle this in a timely manner. And if they don't get something solid nailed down really quick, unless they have a whole bunch of forensic evidence, they're not getting anywhere with it. And it's just going to go, unresolved so you know i don't think it's it's not just a case of these two detectives being corrupt Mm. Uh, what i really think it is is they were just highly amateurish uh under pressure and just came to this crude methodology not that they were setting out to do anything wrong i'm sure that they're under huge pressure because baltimore closes a very tiny fraction of murders or homicides right so they have a it's like they have a chance on this one, so. Right, right. This was a gimme. Yeah. You know, so they took the quickest, most ugliest route possible. But, uh, you know, it just, it, it was an interesting peek inside of the system. Yeah. Well, I'll be curious to read about it if you have more thoughts. Uh, there are other details I didn't go over here that are in the article that I posted, the ugliest lady in Baltimore. And as far as. Actually, what happened with the knife, that'll be in the second edition of The Logic of Steel. Oh, yeah. A couple other recent encounters. That'll be very interesting. I think that's probably enough for today, James, and I don't know um, when my window will start closing here with my kids. So we can call that episode 11. Okay. Thank you very much, Joanna. Thank you. I'm happy you're stay out of crowds. <laughs> stay, right. You know, yeah, I, I ha- yeah, we were taping the day after that Vegas event and uh, it's pretty horrifying. I really don't feel like leaving my house. Well, I think in the future, it's just a good idea for all of us to stay out of crowds, uh, going to ball games, concerts and everything. Yeah. It's just rolling the dice from here on out because these are always going to be targets for this fourth generation, uh, warfare yeah yeah well we can maybe we can talk about that next time too or something else until next time take care